you don't have to be a complete hippie or wear tie-dye or live in a teepee to be sustainable. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today we talk with Tony Budden, the friendly force of nature behind the Hemporium of Cape Town, South Africa. We'll hear Tony's story about why he founded the Hemporium and how it led him to build the first hempcrete house on the continent. We'll include a link with photos of that in the episode notes. Tony lives a life surrounded by hemp, and it was a pleasure to sit down with him to learn more about this beautiful old devil's weed. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals, to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm happy to be here with Tony Budden of South Africa in the Hemporium. Lex, great to be here. Thank you. Great. So you came up here for Inoko, the big expo? Yes, they invited me to come up and tell a little bit of the progress that we're seeing in Africa and also to remind people of the bigger reasons of why we're all in this industry, you know, what the potential for change on environmental issues and um, using products that biodegrade and digest within our bodies and uh, by our planet as well. And yeah, it was a really amazing experience to see how far the industry has come in the last few years in the States. What about cannabis was it that first drew you to it? The hemp story started when we were given a piece of hemp canvas by a friend of ours father who was importing fabrics at the time. And he came back from China one time and he said, you've got to see this. This is made out of cannabis. And obviously, you know, the word canvas comes from the word cannabis. So all canvas used to be made out of out of hemp, and we felt this fabric, and it, it instantly, there was something about that moment of holding something that wasn't smoke, you know, that uh, had a whole tangible experience that went, wow, this plant is way more than we had ever imagined. And I mean, we had imagined that it was a whole lot before that, but this was now something that, that uh, was so tangible, was so, um, you could feel it was strong, it had all these other properties. And we started making bags out of it for other students. And kind of back then, 1996, that's when we started. It was the wear what you smoke market that had a positive viewpoint towards the plant. There was no natural and organic industry. No one was even aware of scarce resources. Um, But as we learned about it, we learned about the other uses as well. And we made it our mission to showcase everything that the plant can offer which is uh, not something I recommend to people who want to get into the industry now because you're working with such an amazing, versatile resource. But we developed in those first 10 years about 2,000 individual products from clothing to body care products to food food ranges and paper products and your construction side. And then you know, eventually we've you know, got into the CBD side as well. So it's just a, a very complex business model for a small team and still at that stage and, and still now actually built on imports. So we get fabrics from China, food from Germany or Canada, um, building materials from UK or France, and paper from Germany, twines and ropes from Hungary. So it's really a, a massive value chain to get our products into South Africa. We, we bring in the raw products and we make everything locally, which is a whole another angle. Instead of just importing something and selling it, we import something and now we've got a production line in, in South Africa to com- convert it. But 
Um, our aim at that stage wasn't to be the biggest hemp clothing company or the biggest hemp fabric company. It was to use all of these products to educate people. You create a sustainable business, of course. We're preaching sustainability. Uh, you have to be sustainable, but was also to educate people on what this plant can offer and look behind what I call the smoke screen, you know, the rest of the, what this plant can do. And so all of this started right as apartheid was ending then. Well, that was exactly it. Uh, South Africa, 1994, the government changed. Everything just opened up. There was all these new influences. Um, we would never, during apartheid, there was a very strict laws against what's called dacha in, in, um, in South Africa. And they still are the same laws, but the enforcement wasn't as bad as, as with the apartheid government. Uh, they really, really clamped down on anything to do with cannabis. Um, so there were very few people who, who were prepared to touch it or work with it. But as we started educating people at that same time with the fresh energy in the country, it was called the Rainbow Nation. We were all moving forward, looking forward at creating something really special in, in South Africa. So um, we, we fitted right into, into a very exciting kind of uh, maverick counterculture sphere at that stage. But then when we, we took a break from it from about 2000 to 2003, well, after finishing studying, the th uh, three partners all went on a, a different journey. Um, uh, we all went, traveled a little bit internationally, went to do some time overseas, and basically um, came back in 2003 more empowered or uh, motivated to really push hemp in, in South Africa because we realized it was starting to grow elsewhere in the in the world and we'd been to japan and to uk and seeing what's happening and we relaunched but this time very much in the natural and organic sector so we cut out anything no rolling papers no pipes or bongs in the shops that we sold um no big leaves on our shirts no reggae colors just saying right this is about sustainability and about a, a product that if we carried on marketing it through that side, through the counterculture side, we'd be preaching to the converted. And we had to convince the people who weren't into the plant already. And how we did that was by de designing products that are normal, you know, like regular, you know, I'm wearing a golf shirt now. Um, we make collared shirts, we make jeans, we make hoodies, we make, you know, like things that everyone's got in the cupboard, but just doing the education of you don't have to be a complete hippie or wear tie-dye or live in a teepee to be sustainable. You know, you can just change the resource that you use to make your products and it will decrease your footprint. So that was a market that was coming, starting in around 2000, 2000, uh, sorry, 2003, 2004. And we slotted into that and then got more into kind of the raw food markets, the, the eco side where people starting to understand, understand what organic was, um, why we need to change and yeah we've been in that sector for since then um i myself have been extracting myself a little bit so i can speak more broadly also on the harms of prohibition and the benefits of medical and all of that so um because you know for when you've been with a company for pretty much 22 years people associate that company with you and you with that company but I know that there are bigger issues as well that I'm, I'm personally looking at um, um, and learning about and want to educate on as well that aren't necessarily only um, around industrial. Which directions would you like to be moving if you had more free time? So if, 
At the moment, what's happened, we've got Hemporium up to a really nice team. Um, they, I can completely trust them to run the business without me being there day to day. So I'm focusing more on um, the surrounding countries that are starting to change the law around cannabis. So working with a project in Malawi, which is the poorest country in the world. It's in the center of, of Africa, pretty much. They call it the warm heart of Africa but very, very base, and we, we know we can have a huge impact with, uh, with the hemp industry there. Um, also working with a project in Lesotho, which is another small country that's given out uh, seven medical licenses, um, and then looking at various other projects in Zambia, Zimbabwe, and also keeping lobbying in South Africa, you know, like to, to change the law in South Africa so that we can take advantage of it, because unfortunately, We've been in hemp research in South Africa f from the government. Government funded re hemp research since 1996. So we've stagnated in research. We could have been a world leader. We started pretty much at the same time as Canada, but we stayed in research where they moved to participatory research, where the farmers carried on doing research. Part of your license is you've got to give you information back. What varieties you planted, when you planted, what yields you got, what pest you saw where South Africa just stayed in the researchers asking for more budget every year to do more small plots and trying to find something that they yeah the perfect crop for Africa instead of saying right let the farmers do that the farmers will get it right within a few years because their farm is on the line researchers will tell you they'll carry on going and research for <laughs> as long as possible just to keep getting more budget so we've lost out a lot of opportunity but at the same time um, we can also learn from others' mistakes. We can learn from some of the concessions, like if we look at what the Canadian farmers did in order to get their licenses that early, is they promised not to touch the flowers, you know, that they wouldn't be working with any of the cannabinoids. So all of those 50,000 hectares that the Canadian farmers grow, currently the CBD goes out the combine harvester back into the ground. And they're not only now trying to get permission to be able to extract that, well, they're obviously realizing that it's a crucial part of the industry now, um, so, you know, we wouldn't want to obviously do that. We, we see CBD as a crucial part to not only, um, you know, financially make it viable on the short term because the industrial, like the fiber side and the food side has a much longer value chain that needs to be, you know, we need decortication facilities, we need fiber processing facilities or, you know, food processing, processing facilities where the CBD you, know, you can get your, your returns quite quickly. It's not if you have access to a lab, ob obviously, to do your extractions. But it also, if, if you're managing to get some of your quick money with that, it drops what you need to sell your fiber for. So your fiber and your biomass and everything becomes really a byproduct. And for the long term for Africa, to have those materials really cheap, your fiber and building materials and even the food side, if the farmers and the, the primary process have made their money off the, the CBD and the, the cannabinoids, and we can get the rest for Africa at a really good price, then then we're winning. You know, then we're not we moving into a staple where hemp will be seen as a staple food and a staple building material, not a niche sitting in eco, like a raw foodie kind of everyone who's already eating so well and building eco houses for people with a lot of money, but really building houses for people who don't currently have a house or are eating you know, such a terrible diet that we can really make hemp food available at a price that you know, the average African can afford and they're living on some of them you know, $2, $3 a day. They're definitely, definitely not gonna buy hemp seeds imported from Canada. 
So, yeah. Because you're even doing food distribution in Kailicha and yeah. some of the townships, correct? So that's one of my, the most exciting and rewarding projects that, that I've been involved in or Emporium's been involved involved in is that we basically were approached to help fundraise for a hemp soup kitchen. So a lady was already making soup for ill people and HIV orphans and um, people with tuberculosis and everything in the townships. So the townships in, in around every South African city are shanty towns, you know, much like you would see in the favelas in Brazil and that kind of thing. Very, very poor diets, very no services going in there at all, very few clinics. And um, this lady, amazing lady, Mama Mickey, um, we can put a link later to, to her, her, her page on Facebook, Yize Ikaya. She feeds about 250 people a day off her government pension and donations. So she was doing it in a really terrible environment, like in a little you know, concrete hut and someone um, raised funding or we were part of a, a crowdfunding thing to raise money to build her soup kitchen out of hempcrete. And we did that, and it ended up it was such a nice space that they're not using it as a kitchen at the moment. They're using it as a workshop space. So the adults who come have to come and do get workshops on permaculture, nutrition, AIDS awareness, um, basic uh, ec economics, that kind of thing, before they get their soup. Um, and also the, the the local clinic sends nurses and that to the hemp uh, hemp house now to do their evaluations and that because it's such a comfortable space you know it's warm in the winter and it's cool in the summer so yeah that's that's I think where what inspires me to keep going in a very challenging environment I mean anyone who's ever been to Africa or understands the complexities of our cultures and our political system and the slow rate of change. Well, understand we ch we operate in a very challenging environment. You know, it's not like the states where you're setting up a business, you can turn it around in about two or three years and be profitable. Anything in Africa takes a long time, and to change perceptions in a fairly conservative culture, and a fairly suspicious culture, you know, there's still a lot of superstition, a lot of um, misunderstanding between the different cultures, between black and white and brown, and between different political parties and different languages and everything, to overcome that and be able to offer a universal um, solution and saying, look, this isn't an African plant. This isn't an American plant. This isn't, this is a earth plant. This belongs to all of us. And that is our, our big push is to say, right, all of us have these endocannabinoid systems, no matter what color you are, no matter what race, what language you speak. So this is, it belongs to all of us and all of us can benefit from us, from it. And in that way, it's quite a, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons it was banned. If you go look in the States with the whole marijuana Mexican thing and in the South Africa who banned it before America, we at both of them you'll find um, quotes that were around, we don't want cannabis because it makes black people and white people fraternize. You know, it makes women, uh, white women see a black man as attractive. Or I think there was a quote in the States of a, it makes a black man step on a white man's shadow kind of thing, you know, like that kind of thing, that this plant has the ability to break down barriers on so many levels, um, you know, on racial levels, on culture levels. If you travel anywhere and you're a plant person and all you need to do is find someone else who, who's been influenced by this plant and you'll find a kindred spirit and someone that at least you have something deeply in common with. So, yeah. And so... As you do this work in other nations of South Africa, what of Southern Africa, what are some of the most convincing 
pieces of the puzzle to these different communities? What kind of, when, as you do education, what really appeals to people? The building side, definitely, because Africa has such a massive um, issue with, with building and, and energy. We have a, like, for instance, Malawi is, the whole country has 342 megawatts of power to run a whole country. And it's not a massive country, but that's not enough to do any kind of uh, industry. So currently, the way they build is using clay bricks that they fire in kilns. But they're not firing it with electricity. They're firing it with charcoal that's made from trees. So these are old growth trees or you know, like hardwood trees that they're cutting down on a massive rate to make bricks. And because of that, they, the deforestation is causing erosion. So you're having all of this mud run off now into the rivers. Malawi, if you look at it on a map, half the country is a, is a massive lake. And it's one of the, it's got the most freshwater fish species, species in the world. Like I think there's more in, there, in that one lake than the whole of Europe, more species. But at the moment, the fisheries are collapsing and they think it's from overfishing, which is obviously a problem. But the other side is that this erosion is causing the estuaries to silt up. So the fish usually breed in the estuaries. Now they can't because it's full of mud from the erosion and the fisheries are dying. So the fishermen are not making the connection that it's their brothers up the road who are cutting down the trees that are leading to the fish, fish stocks collapsing. So we can really push the building side and say, right, rather use air-dried hempcrete than fired clay bricks. You're going to have a more comfortable environment. It's going to be sustainable. You're going to have a whole industry set up to grow enough hemp to supply all of these bricks. At the same time as you're growing, you're growing for bricks, you're going to be growing for fiber. You've now got an eco-textile industry set up that you've got a whole lot of fiber around and you can get your seeds that you're going to have nutrition for people who are malnourished. So it's just like a win-win-win all around. But the biggest challenge that we have to overcome is that uh, most of, of Africa, all the governments, still have to really listen to the international treaties, the United, uh, single, United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs that says cannabis is a drug, you know, that's the whole plant, any product thereof, is undesirable dependence-producing substance, and the federal government of the states. So a lot of the funding that comes into Africa funnels through the states, whether it's World Bank, IMF, you know, USAID, all of this comes through the states, and if the federal government tells the African governments that you are not allowed to use cannabis because all cannabis is a drug. So the feds, you know the story, they don't see any legit legitimate use, or they pretend they don't see any legitimate, legitimate uses. So they will tell African countries that they're not allowed to change their laws. Or if African countries try and change the laws, they'll be, we're not going to give you your preferential interest rates. We're not going to give you your grant, your grant funding because you're supporting a drug industry even if they're doing hemp. So my push a lot of the time, and yeah, uh, maybe I'm just not trusted enough as, a, as an umlungu, which is as a white person, you know, like I, I run into that battle quite a lot of the time. It was like, I'm coming here with a gift to you guys. And they go, well, your grandfather said the same thing, and that didn't work out so well for us. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the time, you know, like I've really got to do education on the ground and get, get local partners and that. But, you know, this idea that, Change your law, and maybe you won't be so reliant on all this grant funding and all of the stuff that you need to get from these other countries because it's always tied in with debt. You know, there's always going to be conditions. And maybe look at this as a way of generating enough income for your country and enough taxes and enough growth and jobs that you'll be self-sufficient. You look at what's, what's happened in Colorado, a state of 4 million people, just how much money has been generated and taxes and everything 
it's pretty much, I would say, the state's economy is bigger than a lot of these countries that we're talking about. Yeah, so having cannabis there, setting up cannabis tourism, you know, doing the hemp side, there's there's no end for how Africa can you know, really benefit from this plant. And it's the next generation that everyone knows of low-cost cultivation. You know, we have in Malawi, we have an option of doing permanent growth you know like it's 12 12 all year round so if you find a plant that grows and still gets to a decent height before flowering at 12 12 it's there's plenty of sunshine there's you know there's good water in the rainy season and there's a big lake to irrigate from in the in the dry season you can do perpetual harvest it's not one season or two season or having to put up lights or having you know all of that you'd be able to literally there's two sides replant your grow and harvest in three months and get four harvests a year. Or we've seen some of the trees, especially the Chinese varieties, they get up to f- four meters, which is, what's that, 12 foot and, and above. And you can harvest perpetually. Once it starts budding, you can take buds off, but it keeps growing more buds. So it might be, we're still doing that experiment, but to see whether you're, instead of this idea of killing the plant, Harvest, let it re, re go, go into veg and harvest again. Not you've got this massive root su- system that's just going to keep sustaining these plants. So there's all these different experiments that that Africa will take care of um, and and benefit from. And also, you know, our labor costs are much lower. We have the sun that will cut down a lot of costs. And um, obviously, the, the there's just the space. There's there's so much that we will be able to offer on the on the world stage with as far as trying to get down the price you know like if you look at the price of the local bushweed kind of that the guys grow you can still get a look at seeded kind of bushweed but you can still get it for under 10 US cents a gram no problem no problem easy yeah and that's in the cities um, that's 100 rand for 100 grams, which they sell it in like a parcel of newspaper. But it's crazy. Then next to it can be a one gram uh, indoor you know, northern lights or whatever that costs the same as 100 grams of the bushweed. The differential is, is absolutely crazy. But you, know, the, you got the Canadians trying to get down to less than a dollar a gram production. You'll get that in Africa very, very quickly. Obviously not if you're going for full medical and you've got to spend your, you know, $20 million on this massive facility that's, you know, got all the biocontrols and all of that. But for your average, uh, being able to to grow for the supplementary market or for definitely for hemp, uh, our costs of production are going to be way lower than anywhere in, in, in North America. And so before I let you go off to the airport and head home, because you, for Hempcrete, your home is actually one of the great symbols of what this game. You really put your money where your mouth is. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your Hempcrete home? So basically going into these meetings with government all the time saying, come on, guys, look at this. This is a huge opportunity for South Africa. This is you know, eco um, investment. It's, it's houses. It's food, all of that. I'd pull out the hemp fabric and they'd go, okay, that looks quite nice, but we've got cotton and got other fibers. And then I pull out the food and oh, we've got other protein, we've got other oils. Then I pull out the hemp brick or the hemp chipboard or something and they go like, wow, you can build houses from this plant. And then they'd want to know where the houses were and I'd tell them they were in Europe or you know, overseas and they would go, okay, we'd really like to see this. And I said, well, let me grow it. And they wouldn't let me grow it. So I said, okay, well, we're not going to get someone else to do the first one. 
And we had to do it in a way that creates aspiration that people want to live in it. So not go straight for the low cost market and build something that's very basic and people go, well, why is it better than brick and cement or is it better than other building materials? So uh, I, we took the knock and made my house. But I took the risk of doing the, the, the prototype, but we pushed it right out. You know, like we did it as much as we can. So just to give you the story is generally I wake up under hemp bed linen and on hemp sheets and I step onto hemp carpets and I open hemp curtains and I'll go and shower with hemp soap and shampoo and use hemp moisturizer and then open my hemp cupboards that are made with hemp chipboard, put on my hemp clothing in a house that's made with hempcrete and hemp insulation in the roof and the floor, go downstairs, make my smoothie with hemp seed oil and hemp protein powder and then put some shelled hemp seed on my salad for lunch um, you know, like go out. Yes, my car's not hemp yet, but it could very well be one of these days. And I go to work at our business, which is providing these products for other people and supporting farmers who grow these products originally to grow something that is less impactful on the planet than other products. And hopefully you know, be motivating people to change. And, and that is my dream that right now I'm still seen as, as alternative. And one of the little great, uh, anecdotes that I, I often speak about is like this word alternative if we look at what's happened to it is if you think about alternative energy alternative medicine alternative clothing alternative music even alternative building materials um, it's all natural it's all the natural medicine the natural building materials the natural energy of uh, even natural music you're using analog music not digital or um, and that's the thing is when did nature go to be the alternative? What happened? When did that happen? That the things from nature are alternative and the mainstream is the synthetic, the petrochemical, the stuff that's man-made, that's plastic that doesn't digest in earth or in our bodies. That's mainstream and everyone accepts, oh, this is the way we live now, better life through chemicals. And anyone who works with nature or wears nature or builds with nature is alternative. So we need to reclaim that word and be proudly alternative and say, you're like, I'm so happy to be alternative because I am the alternative to that. And if we go on that path, we know it's a path to destruction. We know it's a path to pollution of everything that we stand for and uh, of our own bodies. And the other thing I, I've spoken on in, in my, my talk on, at NOCO is very much we have to understand that what we do without, we do within. So what we, put, what we can see happening in the rivers and the oceans out there and our landfills and everything is happening in our own bodies because we too are putting things that our bodies don't know how to digest. Much like the earth doesn't know how to digest um, synthetics and plastics, our body doesn't know how to digest synthetics and plastics. So we have our own rivers, our veins, our lymph fluid, our kidneys that are the estuaries, the filters of our system, clogging up with synthetic molecules that we don't know how to digest. And that's leading to all sorts of health issues. So we have to really take responsibility for that. And that's a very important thing to realize. Forget that we're doing this for our grandchildren or our children or someone in another country. This is affecting each one of us. You know, our, our reliance on synthetic single molecule medicines you know, that our body doesn't might do a job, much like a plastic bag does a job for 15 minutes between the shop and home, but then it hangs around for another 1,500 years or something ridiculous. You know, in our bodies, we're taking these synthetics and putting them in. They might do a job, but they hang around in our bodies because our body doesn't automatically eliminate them because it's 
It doesn't recognize it. It doesn't know if it's something that needs to go out, if it's food or whatever. So plant-based medicine, plant-based clothing, plant-based building materials, all of that will be digestible. The earth knows what to do with it. Our bodies know what to do with it. So a lot of this push is, again, going back to nature. Proudly alternative. You make the alternative the mainstream again. Forget about what they told us, a better life through chemicals. We've seen very, very quickly that that was a lie, and it always will be a lie. And yes, there have been massive progress in modern medicine. There's no doubt about it. But there are ways of us working with food-based medicine or, or medicine that comes in as the shape of food that our body knows how to digest. You know, like, yes, we understand isolates are really nice because it's easy to dose and easy to get exact in your product, but it's the dose curve is a lot steeper. You have to have the dose just right. Too little, it doesn't work. Too much, it doesn't work. Where plant-based, when your body then sees it as food and moves it around the body and it will do its job but then also gets eliminated or excreted, is a much better way for, our, for us to ingest our medicine and just to really, really take control of using things that are digestible and biodegradable. It must break down. Otherwise, you know, we just gain to pollute ourselves out of this planet and no one wants to live surrounded by plastic, wearing plastic, eating plastic. It's just, well, I hope none of you want to live like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we'll put... Uh, a link to pictures of this house because it is a wonderful piece of work um, and it's a beautiful story about all the hemp that starts your day <laughs> yes I mean that's that's my hope again that I'm not the alternative that life is available to so many people all of those products should be available it shouldn't be that we are sitting on the edge of society we should be the mainstream and that's the beauty about this plant it helps people decrease their footprint very easily you know, it still feels good to wear hemp. It feels better to me to wear hemp than other products. Still is, a, you're like, this is a thing. If, if we start giving, making it easy for people to change, you know, like not a sacrifice. It's not something that we have to give up certain things. We can make beautiful cars out of hemp plastic that's maybe powered by you know, sustainable energy or by ethanol that you can still go super fast and have your, your, like, your good feeling of if you want to be like that, if you want to travel. We, we have alternatives these days. Well, alternatives again. You know, that, that, that they're products that are as beautiful as anything that's made from synthetics these days they're as energizing well they're more energizing they um working again with nature so this is the thing is as the industry our job is to create beautiful products that make people feel good and empowered and that they're making a real uh, contribution while not making a sacrifice don't ask anyone to give up their stuff just say like change what your stuff is made out of you know just change that and support the companies that are doing things right that is your, your p biggest power, the currency, the current that you have is in your wallet. And if you don't like the practices that someone's following in their business, don't support them. There's a great analogy I use, but not a lot of people like it. But uh, Big Macs, you know, like going to get a, uh, Mac, a Big Mac and you drive in there and you give your dollars over and you get your burger and you drive away and you think that's the exchange. But if you look at like McDonald's and a lot of the other you know, uh, meat companies are the, the cause of the biggest amount of deforestation in the Amazon as they're cutting down trees to make more pasture land, to grow more soy also, to feed cattle. Now, if you don't agree with deforestation, why are you supporting companies that have that as a practice? 
you're basically paying them to go pay another Amazonian farmer to cut down some more forest because they want to make more burgers for you the next time you come. So we really have to start looking at the impact of our currency, of our money, where we spend it, who we spend it with. And the more we as industry, of natural industry, and the companies that are trying to do it right and be conscious capitalists, you know, doing business for good, the more support we get, the cheaper we can make our products, the more available we'll make it for you and the, the better economies of scale we can get and we will no longer be seen as this niche. Then that's the, the future that you can't use eco, organic or natural as a marketing term anymore because that's just standard. That's the way it should be. We shouldn't be, be able to use that as a marketing term because everyone should have that as a practice. Hopefully we'll get there one day and those who are not doing it are the ones that are pointed out. Not that everyone's normal and, you know, we're trying to do something good. Uh, and then one more thing is just to change the way we celebrate our heroes and this idea that to do good you can't do well. That it's okay to make money and to be profitable while doing good because we have this kind of martyrdom that everyone thinks that if you're making good money while, while saying you're doing good, you must be a fraud. Yeah, like it's it's a, some weird psychology that you know that the the people to celebrate to making money are those who are involved in extraction and oil industry and whatever. You know, those are the guys on the front page of the Economist. But we really need to start celebrating those that are doing good and making money. You look at Patagonia, one of my favorite brands. You know, like they they read read Let My People Go Surfing and the responsible company uh, written by Yvonne Chenard, the head of Patagonia, to see that you can really put amazing um, parts of your business model in that consider your environment and the people around your business at the same time as being very profitable. And that's okay. So, yeah, just um, the more you support support us, the more we can spread these messages, the more we can reach economies of scale and keep telling these stories because um, it's it's quite a challenge being in a business where telling a story is a big part of selling your product you know, like to to actually have this, we're not just selling another T-shirt made in Bangladesh or China or whatever. There's a story behind it, and and that story takes energy to tell. And so, definitely, my advice to anyone who wants to get in the industry now: um, first of all, don't fall in the hemp trap or trying to do it all. Choose something you can do better than everyone else and do that. And and second of all, just be prepared to to have that energy to be able to tell the story at the same time and be excited to tell the story because it's a great story. It is a challenge and an inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom, for coming and sharing today. It is my pleasure. And thank you very much to everyone that I've met here in the States this time. Um, the hospitality of, of this country is amazing, the, uh, maybe specifically this industry. It's amazing to be in among so many people who are doing something for good. You know, the, the, Yes, it's an industry and we need to make money and we need to be sustainable as businesses, but the motivation to get into the hemp industry generally comes from a motivation to be involved in something positive, and that's, it's quite unique in business, you know, that people are doing it for more than just a paycheck. They, they're doing it because they want to feel part of, of doing good and helping people. And that's always inspiring to be around. And uh, it's, I'm going home more inspired than ever. And it's needed because it's hard being a pioneer. But these days, it's, easy, it's never been easier than to find tribe. You know, we can find tribe 
people know me through social media and through what we the videos we put out and all of that I come here and I'm almost more recognized than I am at home and that's amazing you know that to find people that you can connect with you can just imagine a couple of hundred years ago you get kicked out by your tribe you would be wandering around in the wilderness for a very long time before you found another one that would accept you but these days you all you got to do is reach out through social media or for you know, go online and you will find people that you can connect with. And if you want to go, you want to check out some more. That's my other advice to Americans. Get out more. Go see this beautiful planet. And also realize that, you know, if I look around around here, there's, a, there's people who do, do behave and, and live as if we aren't living on a planet with scarce resources. And once you go out there and you see we, we, we're in trouble on this place and we do need to make change and we can't all keep keeping up the, the overconsumption that, that is uh, the predominant culture in, in the States. Um, or if we want to do keep consuming like that, we have to change what we're consuming and how it's packaged and how it's delivered and all of that. Um, so yeah, there's there's change that needs happening. There's people, more people that we need to join this industry and and to keep educating and bringing more people around so that we're no longer on the edge. Hashtag find the others. Find the others. Find your tribe. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tony. It is my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott. And I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>